Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Steve Symington, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that's freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I'm joined by my co-host and fellow lead advisor, Matthew Cochran, to interview a special guest, one who should enlighten and inform. Matt, why don't you introduce our guest? You're absolutely right, Steve. Uh, today we are joined by Sean Emery, the founder and chief investment officer of Avery & Company. Founded in 2016, the investment firm describes themselves as value investors at their core in search of quality companies led by talented individuals that offer long-term sustainable growth opportunities. If you're on Fintwit, you should definitely be following Sean. He shares out uh, his some of his research regularly. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Sean, why don't you just start by introducing yourself to our audience and telling us the path you took to founding, to founding Avery. Uh, what got you interested in investing and led you to start your, your own firm? Right. Yeah, no, no. Again, thanks for having me. Uh, really enjoy some of the work you guys put out there. Uh, for me, my career really started early on. I began paying attention to stocks in high school. We kind of just talked about high school uh, before the show. And uh, that took me all the way to university and I was able to actively participate in, and manage parts of the school's endowment. Um, we managed at that time a highly concentrated portfolio of 10 equities, 10 credits. Um, so that, that kind of philosophy is still in my heart today. Um, I then went to a, a hedge fund during that time. Uh, we focused on small cap equities. So throughout kind of university and, and the hedge fund, small caps were at the core of what I was doing. Um, and it really gave me a sense of understanding companies at their formation um, and understanding and triangulate kind of what a good company eventually would look like. Um, and then from there, I came back to Miami, Florida, where uh, I was born and raised and worked at a family office. Uh, I was able to not only manage a, an, a high conviction equity portfolio, but also oversee a macro strategy that goes beyond our borders. Uh, and this was... And also important lesson throughout my kind of upbringing, which gave me a sense of understanding of companies that weren't necessarily U.S. based and um, some of the intelligence that uh, we're seeing that today in, in Israel, right, where a lot of the tech companies are coming out of. Um, so early on, I was able to touch some of the, those companies as well. I, I founded an app with my brother and another founder um, where it was based on geolocation and, and friends and things like that. So consumer and tech were uh, obvious areas of investment focus as well. And that ultimately allowed me, I had always a passion in analytics and research and that skill bodes pretty well for starting a firm. And uh, at the heart of every investment firm, I always say is great research. So I set out to build a, an investment firm built on our own proprietary research and really run strategies based on, on high conviction. So that's ultimately kind of the chain of events that led to, to Avery. Sean, you're, you're very open about sharing a lot of information on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, you have a, a, a podcast where you interview like, uh, uh, like specialists in their field, fields and experts. Like what? That's kind of like different though than a lot of how a lot of uh, active investing firms approach it. Like wh why do you, why are you so open in your communication, I guess, and, and so openly share some of your research? Yeah. Um, so the, the real reason honestly is to uh, put a lot of that research out there and 
to eventually get checked, right? Um, in the sense of you put something out there on a thesis and we, we don't necessarily say we own or buy or sell anything because obviously compliance related issues. Um, but you can probably get a good sense of where our, uh, our mental state is at in terms of a, a business. And generally speaking, I think um, the Twitterverse and some other parts of uh, the internet are a pretty good round table of, of interesting minds trying to, uh, honestly, we're all uh, on the same page together in terms of finding the best ideas and the best research and uh, uncovering new things. Um, so I think 10 years ago, this didn't exist. Uh, today it does. And taking advantage of that, I think is just important. So we do the work and why not share the work? Um, and then commercially, honestly, it's a, it can be a driver of, uh, of people uh, learning more about Avery. Um, so there's two aspects to it, but again, uh, they both are kind of a flywheel together, uh, if you will. Fintwit keeps you honest, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely do. They definitely do. That's hard. Uh, Sean, I, I can't wait to, to dive deeper maybe into some of the companies uh, that you hold in your portfolio, but just knowing some of the companies you hold and follow, I uh, can't help but notice it's an interesting mix of how most people would qualify them as value and growth. So how would you describe your investing style and what do you look for before making an investment? Yeah, no, I think what you're seeing is, is our belief that we, we, we are value investors at our heart, but, um, the, the main concept is I think we're all value investors and, and despite uh, the different growth rates that are out there, we're all trying to look for value that's left uh, within a business, right? So if they're growing 50% year over year, uh, we're trying to um, uh, follow that thesis and ensure that uh, they're growing directionally uh, to, to uh, fill in that valuation and or it's a company that's not necessarily growing and they're going through some sort of transformation in which that's going to unlock the value. But at, at the core of it, there's value there. Uh, the growth rate is a function of just the business. Um, but when we're looking for a company, honestly, we're looking for something we understand uh, and we do the work to try to understand best. We tend to stay away from things we don't understand. Uh, you won't see us owning a, uh, a pharmaceutical company um, that's, that's actually developing the drugs. Um, I think you're seeing that today when, when it comes to vaccines and the race for vaccines. That's happening every day in, in other categories we just don't see it because it's not COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very, very difficult to, uh, for, for us, uh, obviously there's, there's specialists out there in that field. Um, we just tend to stay away from that. So our core competency is where we tend to um, uh, track. And from a, a kind of total investment portfolio, we're ultimately looking for uh, something that has a moat today, right? The, the, the core principles of an economic moat today. But more importantly, honestly, is one that can be developed uh, uh, into the future. And we think those are where the real gems and stars uh, uh, come from. So, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, people kind of, uh, they tend to, to separate in their minds value and growth, but we really are, you know, we're, we're seeking value. And sometimes that mean, might mean, you know, a company that is, is a value relative to its growth potential. And that's, a, you know, really what we're searching for. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you, so what would you consider, like, what is evidence that a company might develop in economic mode? Like, what, what would be something you're looking for there? Well, we're seeing it now, right? So let me just give you an example of, like, Square's Cash App, um, where mm -hmm. uh, a network of 2 million users, it doesn't have the same network effects as one of 40 million users. Um, and obviously, it's the product that drives the consumption. Um, and it's whether that, that product adoption and the evolution of the product, you think, uh, right? Because at, at, at some point in time in our investment careers, we have to make 
uh, instinctive decisions um, that are based on facts and a thesis that you build and, and trying to track that thesis. Um, but ultimately, it's trying to discover where, whether company XYZ is developing a network um, uh, where it, it is sustainable. Um, and we all know the different network effects that are out there. Facebook, we saw it yesterday, right? <laughs> With all the earnings reports uh, and the type of earnings power that they can have even despite the situation. And you go through the chain of economic moats and there's like four, five, six, seven, ten, depending on which, however many you can uh, define. Um, and ultimately we are trying to draw that path to uh, moat status in a sense, right? And um, and that was just a good example of, of uh, of, of Cash App as one where it wasn't a moat maybe uh, uh, two years ago. Um, it was the potential of a moat. Uh, I'd say the, the seller business was much more of a moaty business uh, early on from in terms of switching costs, right? It's hard to switch once you've already added their seller business across 10 locations. Um, and uh, the Cash App side, which was under, I, I'd say, under analyzed by most, or, uh, and, and, and now again, you're seeing a that acceleration in the business, uh, in the app store and app trends and things like that. So it's clear evidence that a network is, is forming. We're seeing the boost partners that are signing up to that product. That is further evidence that there's something that uh, other uh, commercial companies are interested in um, to be part of. And again, so these are little things that we're looking at to see, is there a moat building here? Gotcha. Like, so Sean, one of the great things about following you on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, like just the interesting facts you find from out of the way places. And like, I feel like I, 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 I want to feel better about myself maybe and think that like I look in a lot of out of way places, but you, you come up with things that I wouldn't even think about looking. Um, so I'm talking about things like job postings, patents, and just other things you find from places where not a lot of people are looking. So where are you looking for new information and how do these things inform your investing process? Yeah. I mean, this goes back to the question earlier. It's like sharing it to the, the public sometimes. And in some cases, I, I sit there and I'm like, should I start sharing this? Because then most people will be doing the same thing I'm doing. And then you kind of lose maybe the intermediate edge. Um, if, if, we could, if it is an edge, right? We don't, not, not everything's an edge. But so, so in general, that's, that's a pretty good question. And the truth is, it's really all about the companies we own or track. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is validate our thesis. And... With that, uh, not all companies are equal. So take, for example, a company that your thesis is dependent on uh, consistent innovation uh, and the evolution of the product. So really trying to uncover what is next in their pipeline could be critical to maintaining your position, right? You're, you're trying to grow into a valuation for a growth company. They better be uh, innovating and developing new solutions and products. Uh, and if that's not part of your thesis, then I don't know what is. Um, and you have to figure out ways to try to track that. So job postings could be a good example of determining overall direction for some of these businesses, uh, or think gaming, where that category, it's all about game launches and releases, and ultimately uh, purchase intent of those products is going to be driven by kind of uh, marketing and demand for that, that product. So we're looking at YouTube views of their trailers for each game, and you can see uh, a, a pattern develop in, in that kind of um, analysis of YouTube views on, on, on that. So again, we're just trying to uh, separate kind of just looking for unique information and really trying to say, okay, what's our thesis on company XYZ? Um, 
and what can we use that's out there in the world to potentially uh, track our thesis and, main and, and make sure that uh, it's maintaining that, that trajectory. Um, so that's ultimately what drives us to try to uncover things, um, right? Because again, uh, job postings for a company that's not necessarily doing anything particularly innovative or changing anything, job postings may not tell you anything uh, versus somebody that is consistently innovating um, and doing new things. So um, it's all specific to the companies we're own or, or tracking. So that's, a, that's, that's really interesting. So now, um, so let's say you, you, you found these companies, you, you have the businesses that you're interested in. Now, how do you think, uh, Sean, about portfolio allocation? Now, how do you determine, you know, how many companies you're invested in at a given time? How do you think about diversification across different industries and sectors? Um, tell me a little more about your thought process there. Yeah, so breaking that up a little bit, it's first, uh, from a portfolio construction standpoint, we invest in eight to 25 companies. Um, okay. So the lowest is going to be eight. Um, and we take, which I think is different from most, is an equal weighted approach uh, at the yeah. onset. What we're trying to do is remove our bias, right? Like I, I'm a fan of, of Square. Um, and a user, this and that, right? So I have, I have a natural uh, uh, bias towards them that I know is, is outside, right? So uh, we have our valuation set out on all our companies as well. And so we start out as an equal weight and eight will be your, your uh, kind of max number in terms of the equal weight from a positioning standpoint. Yeah. Um, if we don't have eight companies and we have five, um, those five companies are at an eight, eight equal weight, right? And the rest is cash uh, uh, at that equal weight as well. Um, so we don't have any, we can, from a mandate standpoint, we have, uh, we could be 100% cash if we wanted to. Uh, all my capital is invested in the same strategy. So uh, if, if it's time to be in all cash, I think it's time to be in all cash. Um, and essentially there's that alignment. Uh, but again, from a uh, portfolio allocation standpoint, it starts with the equal weight. And ultimately we're trying to discover these companies and, and move through a process that we've developed, uh, which is called discovery, follow focus, uh, and then approved or not. Um, and that's ultimately the companies that go into our portfolio, um, portfolio diversification across sectors, industries. Again, we have no bias, but we say there's natural, um, diversification when you think about, uh, what they're doing again, tech is not tech, right? Uh, if you look at it, the tech sector or you look at, um, consumer discretionary, there's, there, there's sectors, but it, once you start to dig deep, they're, they're not really related in terms of the companies underneath. So many um, subsectors. Yeah. Yeah, they're very much subsectors and subs of subsectors and industries, groups. Um, and we think naturally, if you're finding the, the current company that has a moat or the company that's going to develop a moat, there's really only going to be one, two, three winners in a category. Um, that's played out in multiple categories throughout history. And that will allow you, if you're following your discipline of, of following companies that have a moat or are looking to create a moat, um, Naturally enough, you should only be investing in one, two companies within a subgroup um, that will be different from another subgroup. So we think we'll have natural diversification in terms of real inherent risk. Um, but without that, or with that, like there's no actual segmentation in terms of we can't have 100% tech or 100% uh, energy. Um, so, okay. That's kind of so, how we think about it. What you got, Matt? Oh, well, I was just going to say so. Uh, Listeners, if you don't know, we're, we're recording on, on Friday, July 31st, and uh, 
you won't be listening till the following week. But last night, uh, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Facebook all reported. And yet, Sean, you tweeted out like kind of like a cryptic tweet last night saying like, you know, <laughs> these aren't the, the, these are all, all these companies are reporting, but none of them are the most in, or the one I'm most interested in. So what, if, if you don't mind sharing, what, what were you most interested in? Yeah, so it, why? it's spilling some beans, but it's, it's Mohawk Group. Um, uh-huh. And small little company. I don't know if you guys heard of them, um, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming, yeah, they IPO'd maybe like a year and a half ago. Um, so I remember when they, they, they went public first um, and watched the roadshow and everything and interesting. Um, and again, over the last year and a half or so, we've just been following the company. Uh, essentially what they're doing um, is – uh, they live on the Amazon kind of platform, right? They, they sell on Amazon. Um, they're arguably one of the biggest sellers on Amazon. And they are uh, extracting data through their product called Amy um, and essentially creating products, discovering products um, where there is either a gap in terms of reviews and review quality uh, or gap in terms of the, the, the product itself on the Amazon and, and ultimately trying to build products in what they call their launch phase within th- a three month period um, to get them to be the category leader. Um, so think batteries, right? Um, uh, which is not them. They have de- dehumidifiers and ice uh, buckets. If you go on kind of their website, you'll see some of their brands. Um, and their goal, honestly, at, 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 at uh, kind of a high level is to go after these long sustaining categories where brand is not as much of a uh, uh, part of the equation and their brand building is more on the review side. So if they can get category leadership quickly um, within an Amazon category, they're able to uh, build out that review system and reviews in a sense uh, that social power um, is a moat in itself. Um, And as long as you're maintaining your product and updating your product, obviously, uh, that can be extremely powerful. Um, the more they grow, the more products they develop, the, the less risk per product, right? Uh, as they develop, so there's this flywheel developing. Um, during COVID, they've seen a massive acceleration in people purchasing dehumidifiers, people purchasing um, ice uh, buckets and things like that that they're selling. Um, so they, they've seen a sharp uplift in, in activity and growth. Um, so we wanted to see exactly what was going on there. We talk with uh, the management team. Um, we have a conversation with them next week after uh, post earnings uh, to get more insights, maybe bring them on our podcast. Um, and, but anyways, just a very, very interesting story. We, we love the ones that no one, most people aren't paying attention to. And again, directionally, we, we, we know what the path to kind of a moat is at some point. Um, it's just whether the company can execute and get there. Um, and that's the question. That's like the the million dollar question, right? So, yeah. uh, So to clarify for people listening, this isn't Mohawk industries, the flooring manufacturer. That's a, that's a bigger company. This is, uh, I believe it's Mohawk group holdings, MWK, correct? On the NASDAQ. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the one we're talking about. The little small cap. I think they're Last I checked, their market cap was like 140 million or something like that. So pretty small. Tiny. It's, it's very, yeah. very tiny. Uh, but, but interesting, uh, interesting yeah. company. A uh, little bit of a dip today uh, that I'm looking at, but I haven't dug into their their earnings report. But um, yeah, that's a that's an interesting company. Um, speaking of uh, interesting companies, one of the companies that I'm I'm uh, most fond 
uh, is Nutanix. And judging by your Twitter feed, I think we share that affinity. And uh, it, it's one of my, my favorite names. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about your, uh, I'm assuming, your bull thesis for Nutanix? Yeah. Yeah, no, so Nutanix is, uh, we, we have affinity for a lot of aspects of it. The product, the, uh, the team, um, and their ability to execute and work through some of the things that are, have, have taken place. And ultimately, one of the reasons why we got involved uh, is there, uh, there's a lot of confusion around the name. So um, mm-hmm. for us, when you start to segment what's going on in the infrastructure landscape, um, there is the uh, separation between kind of uh, public cloud, right, um, and on-premise, basically yep. the two segments in terms of IT infrastructure. And what we are seeing and what we've heard both in the company and uh, in the industry is the evolution towards it used to be public cloud versus private um, data center. And you're seeing kind of that uh, today they would call it hybrid cloud, right? The, the combination of, of, of on-prem and cloud or public cloud. Um, and on top of that, you have multi-cloud. So you have ultimately you, you can even hear it. there's a lot of complexity there. Mm-hmm. Um, and wherever there's complexity, there needs to be some sort of a simple solution that sits in between it all um, to help orchestrate. So Deeraj comes from Oracle. He knows data extremely well. Data yeah. is at the heart of all of this in terms of trying to make multi-cloud, hybrid cloud. And, and when I say hybrid cloud and multi-cloud, it's essentially being able to run, build an app, run it, and maintain it no matter where the data resides, whether it's in, in GCP, Google uh, Cloud, or Amazon Web Services, or Azure from Microsoft, or hosting it in your own private data center using Dell or HPE or any of the other vendors, um, but having a single point of glass, plane of glass is what, how they like to frame it in terms of being able to maintain, provision, uh, and orchestrate all of your applications and data um, and doing so in an efficient way, right? So right. their end goal and uh, kind of value to uh, their participants, and they have 16,000 customers. They're, they have a ton of uh, businesses in the Fortune uh, uh, 500. Um, and the, the biggest thing that's happening today is on the accounting side. So about a couple of years ago, they went through the uh, transition from essentially dropping almost half of their revenue in, in the hardware space um, and ultimately that sends a revenue shock to the business, but that, that revenue came with no margin. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've seen over the last several years is as they uh, evolve from a hardware software centric business to a pure software business, um, there's a lot of new uh, transitions they have to go through as well, which is the shift from um, term licenses to subscription licenses, which is another uh, revenue uh, kind of compression mechanism, I guess, right? Because you're moving yep. from selling five-year term licenses where you kind of get cash and revenue up front to a subscription license where now you're um, paying that over time. Um, and, and those are essentially two aspects of their business that has transformed that's compressed revenue. We see it. It's also showing up in their gross margins, though, however, the transition, which is allowing them to... Um, uh, obviously have much higher gross margins, which in theory allows them to uh, deploy some of that in their sales and marketing, which shows their sales and marketing is a little bit out of whack uh, from a, uh, a pure uh, dollar standpoint. 
Um, but what they're trying to do is again, align their business and their sales reps to this new model that they're running. And they've been doing that over the last two quarters. Uh, and last quarter we saw uh, a bookings growth rate above 20% for the first time in over, over a year and a half. So COVID wasn't the best thing to happen to them, even though they have some products in their pipeline that um, like Nutanix frame, which is desktops as a service. They also run traditional VDI and they're, they're partners with um, uh, companies like Citrix. Uh, and so, so they have part of their business that's doing extremely well in this environment, uh, which we think will be a catalyst uh, for future adoption of their other products. Um, so again, you have this company that's going through a ton of transitions. IT infrastructure isn't the cleanest and most easiest place to understand. We love that. And at some point, uh, what's easy to understand is when cash starts dropping at the bottom line, hopefully in the next uh, kind of uh, four to 12 quarters, um, we, we think that could be a powerful uh, mechanism for uh, investor interest again. Um, yeah. So kind of at a high level, that's how we're we're thinking about it in terms of everything that's going on there. Again, not an easy place to understand, uh, but that's ultimately, in our view, uh, the cheaper parts of technology today. So, yeah, and uh, you know, they they want to make uh, really the the platform in, in handling those IT tests just really seamless and uh, admirable from that standpoint. But uh, yeah, yeah. You saw but, Forrester report the other day, right? So Forrester yep. uh, Independent, and it's very powerful for selling. Um, so I used to know someone that, that worked there. And, these reports, the Gartner ones, the, the Forrester ones, they're powerful uh, selling tools for these companies. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, and they're building out a, a self-service model. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've messed with their, their, uh, their test, right, where you can go on there and um, kind of play with their product. And yeah. that, that's powerful because no other company is really doing a self-serve onboard IT infrastructure other than like the pager duties of the world. Uh, which yeah. is a little less, it's not the same thing, right? Because um, you're not actually touching necessarily the data. Um, so uh, that, that's an interesting selling motion that they, they didn't have, uh, I'd say, uh, last year. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, when, when, for those of you listening, when uh, Sean mentioned uh, Deeraj earlier, he's talking about Deeraj Pandey, uh, Nutanix's founder, CEO, a uh, really interesting character. And uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, uh, I have, you know, high, high conviction, uh, trust in, in his leadership, but, uh, Matt, I won't monopolize the conversation. I, I'd love to pass it over to you to ask, uh, about some of the, some of the other companies, uh, that you're interested in. Yeah, sure. Uh, Sean, uh, another, uh, company that we, we've noticed, uh, you've, you're very interested in is, is Square. So when, uh, you know, since COVID-19 hit, like, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's almost like a tale of two cities where like their seller side is getting hammered and their cash app side is exploding. Like, how do you see those two stories and how important is each for, for Square's future? Yeah. So they're both very, very important long-term. Um, we're, we're still uncertain about whether these two ecosystems uh, merge um, or it turns out to be kind of the eBay uh, PayPal uh, kind of playbook. Uh, there, there's easy places to see where there are synergies, and there, but there's also easy places where you could say long, long term, right, where one's an actual kind of financial uh, institution, uh, and then the other one is dedicated to kind of uh, seller verticals. Um, whether those two make sense together, again, way too early to even hypothesize that, but, but we are um, in a sense. Uh, but again, yes, you take the cash out business, I think that's the easy one to say 
that it's um, performing well uh, at downloads um, are, are supporting that um, all the different types of marketing prowess that they have as a, as a company is, is pretty incredible. Um, so stepping away from cash app, cause again, that's, that's the, the easy one to say everything's doing well. Seller business is an interesting one because while it's, they're, they're likely seeing, um, seller churn, right? Through the force churn, right? Through, uh, closures of businesses. You're, you're also seeing the potential of an uplift in, in the amount of dollar volume that goes through their platform from their current seller base. Uh, because sellers today are, are now being forced to only accept uh, electronic payments. So a business that was doing 50% cash and 50% electronic transactions, let's say at a coffee shop, uh, is now doing maybe 50% of their volume from before, but maybe 100% electronic. And that comes out at the same number from a volume coming through that platform. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic that I think we're some are maybe not uh, taking into an account um, that while they may lose 20% of their business, um, the other 80% is 100% going through the system. Um, in addition to that, when you look at the competitive environment, you look at companies like Toast, which had to furlough half their company um, and other special verticals, whether it's uh, um, point of sale solutions in, in, in hotels and things like that, um, these are industries that the, the verticalized, which we, we tend to like vertical kind of specific companies, um, this may bite them in the butt here um, and not from their own doing. Cause again, just before this toast got a, a really nice valuation and funding. Um, but again, pretty much all of their sellers went from hundred uh, percent growth to or hundred percent uh, payment volume to maybe, we, we don't know, right? But enough to furlough half your business. Um, and so from an incremental customer standpoint, we think ultimately that could be uh, a long-term or medium-term catalyst for them in terms of wins. It's also forcing a lot of their current seller base to, to, to take on their Square Online, which is kind of Weebly, which they acquired several years ago, competed with Wix. So I knew we were investors in Wix. Uh, and, and um, we believe was always kind of the number three or whatever. Um, and, and so they acquired that. So this is forcing sellers to move that direction, which if you're square, you're extremely uh, happy about. They shared some numbers last quarter in terms of like 5X growth in that business. Still small business uh, relative to the, the entire thing. Um, but again, if we're talking about moats, uh, if you have five locations and now you have your online connected to it all, uh, I think that becomes a pretty powerful long-term uh, characteristic. Um, and that, that's really kind of what we're, we're looking at. I mean, Square's not only going against the Clovers of the world, they're ultimately going against the legacy kind of companies, not companies, but um, uh, a merchant that weren't even embracing kind of this day and age tech. Um, and we're using old legacy like cash registers and things like that. Uh, and so that has probably forced them to think about uh, moving to Clover, to Square, to, to many of the other um, kind of vendors. Um, so we think, again, this reshapes the thinking in terms of embracing a company like Square's point of sale uh, long-term. And then lastly, uh, PPP went through their platform. So I think it's highlighted their, their ability to, uh, um, to be a, a kind of vendor for financial services, right? So again, if we're talking about job descriptions earlier, 
They had they have a lot of lending um, um, capabilities or requirements in their job description descriptions lately, um, and they have the the uh, bank charter that uh, they have to basically become a bank here the next year. Um, so this sets them up well, uh, and they make transaction fees uh, from those PPP loans. So they'll make incremental dollars from that, and then also highlight that they can they can process your loan. So if you were a Square seller before. Now you feel probably a little bit more comfortable uh, using Square Capital uh, maybe in, in six months from now uh, when business hopefully gets to some sort of stability. Sure. So if you could look five years, maybe 10 years into the future, how do you see Cash App evolving from then to now or from now to then? <laughs> right. So my son will be 12 then. Um, and if, if I'm looking at the evolution of Cash App, 12 years from now, or 10 years from now. Um, look, I, I, I think they, they move into almost every vertical segment of, of financial services, right? So uh, everything from budgeting to eventually insurance to eventually mortgages and things like that. It just makes more sense to have it all in one place. If we, right, if you just step back and think as a consumer, um, I'd rather consolidate my financials with one institution. I really would. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like having to look at all my stuff um and go to have to go to mint or something like that to aggregate everything because they're all coming from different uh, avenues so i do think they'll continue to evolve that product and uh have lending have and lending separates into all types of categories right um and uh again we're seeing the early signs of that so uh, if, if lemonade can go out there and create a digital insurance company uh, i think cash app could do potentially something similar um, that's probably not priority number one or 10. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking if you're talking about 10 years from now, I wouldn't be shocked if there was multiple avenues uh, that they could touch on. Again, I think it's somewhat endless. And do you think it can get there like, uh, or a FinTech company like Square or maybe even PayPal, do you think they can get to that kind of place where they're an all-in-one financial app almost before like the big banks like JP Morgan Chase or Bank of America that are also investing heavily in technology? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think, I think uh, it, it's somewhat overstated that those companies, they're investing in technology and they're building technology. And I think that's the difference. Um, and they just have different DNAs, right? Um, these, these companies are willing to take bigger risks um, and, um, and create new products and solutions, hoping that they will uh, catch on. Um, and they all are catching on and their marketing capabilities is, is allowing them to kind of upsell some of these solutions. So I do think honestly that the, some of the big banks will be there. Um, it, uh, I don't think big banks go away, um, but you start to see the middle market of banks um, kind of stuck where they don't have the capital to invest in the, the proper technology. Um, and again, they're probably going after the young consumer and this is PayPal and, and Square are the ones that are capturing the young consumers that in 10 years will be hopefully 35 years old and ready to uh, kind of take on their uh, mortgage and, and, and all the different applications that we're talking about here. Um, but I do think they can be kind of the super app, let's say, of, of financial services um, or one of the many super apps uh, within financial services and or just be kind of, yeah, a digital bank. I think. Ultimately, that is the future because it, it just makes sense. Um, so, I think we should bookmark this podcast so in another five, 10 years, we can look back and be like, hey, 
we'll have yeah. you back on. We'll discuss what we got <laughs> right. Yeah, be like, remember when we said this, and now you're right, and yeah, hopefully, no. So we talked a lot about technology and innovative companies, but now like there's another company you have uh, shared a lot of information about and which I have a, a mixed history with. So that's Capri Holdings. <laughs> so um, like, why don't you share your thoughts on Capri Holdings with us? That's the, for listeners, that's the, the, the holding group of luxury brands such as Michael Kors and, and Jimmy Choo and, and other uh, luxury brands. Versace, right? That was last yeah, exactly. year. Yeah. Versace, yes. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, the last like uh, four months has been uh, very challenging for them um, and and investors in general. Um, and the the overall thesis there, and 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 clearly, COVID's not a friendly place to discretionary retailers. Um, and that 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 obviously just makes a ton of sense. But when you when you look at what Capri was building, will build. Um, over the next several years um, is, is again, trying to do a couple different things. It's stabilize that Michael Kors brand, m- most importantly in North America. And a lot of that weakness uh, in that brand is not coming from their direct retail, but more, mostly from their, um, uh, their, their partners, right? Macy's and things like that, where they sell into wholesale. Um, so it's really trying to move a lot of that kind of wholesale um, business back into the retail and online. And they're set up uh, and positioned pretty well, especially relative to uh, other uh, retailers because they've focused tremendously on social um, over the last several years. So again, if you think digital um, commerce uh, over the next decade is gonna be extremely strong, uh, we think they're positioned well when you look at the entirety of their portfolio of products. And again, it's these three companies, uh, Versace, Jimmy Choo, um, and Michael Kors, they, they have roughly like 45, 50 million, um, uh, let's say Instagram followers, uh, to, for example, to um, uh, essentially sell and market into. And that, that's really, really powerful when you start to compare it to companies like Tapestry, which owns Coach and, and Kate Spade and some others, um, where they have about 7 million in total. Um, so it positions them well specifically when we start talking about Instagram shop and, and some of the other products that are being built, uh, WeChat uh, overseas, which is uh, an extremely powerful vertical for luxury retail, uh, Alibaba and, and, and some other different uh, products that are out there. Um, and when you start to look at that, so that's the Michael Kors brand in terms of stabilizing that. That's not ultimately the, the, uh, the catalyst here as much as it is building out the Versace brand globally. Um, where here's a company that uh, came in doing seven, $800 million in revenue uh, with around um, 150 units across the world. The average luxury retailer, think of uh, Gucci and some of the others have 300 locations. So there's, there's definitely a uh, space for them to build out. And they, they were doing it successfully uh, pre-COVID where same store sales there were uh, hitting uh, in the low uh, double digits. Um, and that alone, right, a, a company doing a billion dollars in revenue with uh, uh, the potential of 20, 25% operating margins uh, with 10, 12% same store sales. I mean, you're talking about companies like uh, Lululemon that are getting 40, 50 time multiples on that. Um, and Versace alone could extract a, a ton of value in this business. Keep in mind, in aggregate, this business was doing about a billion dollars in cash flow. So we weren't talking about a a business that was um, that was uh, 
um, struggling by any means uh, on the cash flow side. It was more writing the ship. And we, this is for us uh, as an investment standpoint, it was more of a transformation story. Now a transformation going into a transformational period doesn't really help you um, in terms of COVID. Um, but what we've seen, and one of the reasons we, we, we like Capri a lot is the management team, uh, John Idol as the leader, he's really, he, one of the things he did really, really well was uh, turn Michael Kors into around a $4.5, $5 billion revenue business, which is extremely hard to do. He oversold his business, right? Because he, he degraded the brand slightly. Um, and now he has, has the opportunity with Jimmy Choo and Versace to grow those businesses using the same tactics in, in a sense, but at a higher level um, as he did before. So in this period, we were uh, uh, kind of uncertain on how this business would pan out. Why? Because uh, starting this uh, COVID-19, they, they had around $200 million in cash. Um, they had about $1.2 billion in debt. Today, they have $1.1 billion in, in cash, uh, $1.8 billion in debt. Um, they basically sold through all their inventory, didn't have to take on any more debt, pushed out their, their, their maturities, and executed wonderfully here um, without having to look like American Airlines or any of these other companies that are essentially um burning or taking on debt to burn to burn that that capital um so positioned wise they haven't had to um uh, investors haven't had to sacrifice anything other than uh kind of near-term growth um and so they're positioned well as many of the vendors uh in the market are are, are struggling they, they sit well they're sitting on their hands right waiting for the environment to clear up um but the core thesis they are brands within retail we don't want to own uh, fast fashion, we want to own high margin, 60% um, uh, gross margin, or yeah, gross margins on this business, 20% operating margins at scale, it looks very much like a software uh, 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 operating model outside of the consistent uh, reoccurring revenue. Um, so again, it's really, really attractive. And at the time, it was trading at kind of seven times, uh, six times cash flow. Um, and, and again, cash flow today is distorted and, and things like that. So it's not a clear model. Um, today, but you have to give that management team a lot, a lot of credit for how they've been able to maneuver their financials um, to, to honestly weather the storm and just wait for uh, the clouds to clear. I really do think that's an underappreciated advantage, their ability to come out of this without taking on significant debt. I mean, that's a big reason, say, for example, Warren Buffett sold his airline holdings. He said, they're, you know, you're going to come out of that with $14 billion in additional debt, and that comes out of earnings eventually. <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, as a shareholder, that leaves you that much poorer. And uh, it, that's a fantastic that I, I keep wanting to say Michael Kors just because I covered the no, years of that. No, me too. but no, it's Capri Holdings. And, uh, and it's certainly starting from a very low valuation. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Yeah, so so that's a, a compelling uh, name on the consumer goods side that uh, that has tech-esque margins. That's interesting. So uh, I really like that. Um, and I think that's probably a safe place to, to wrap up our conversation at risk of going long. Sean, um, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you if they're interested in following you? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Twitter. Uh, so at underscore Sean David, uh, the website, Avery, A-V-O-R-Y dot X-Y-Z. Um, you can check our podcast out, Inside Scoop with, with Sean Emery, I think. Uh, so yeah, if you ever want to reach out, you can shoot me a message on Twitter, uh, email, email these guys. Uh, or my own email as well, sean at averyco.com. Um, those are kind of all the different places you can find me. 
uh, we got plenty of research and, uh, and yeah. Beautiful. Sean Emery, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on and, and discussing investing with us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Uh, so I think we can wrap it up again. Uh, thanks for joining us and listening, everyone. I'm Steve Symington, lead advisor with Seven Investing, here with fellow lead advisor Matthew Cochran and Sean Emery of Avery. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. Using this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.